0: Karen stood at the front door in her housecoat, waving goodbye to her husband and their two twin sons. She had been up since 5 a.m. The last two hours she had spent helping her husband, Dave, get ready for another four-day business trip and assisting her twin boys as they got ready for another day of the freshman year in high school. Now Karen would admit that all of her young men could fend for themselves. But the boys had become accustomed to mom-made lunches, which, by the way, were far superior to anything the cafeteria could offer. She also understood that Dave could pack his own suitcase for a business trip, but she had been doing this for so long, there was just a way that she had of arranging the clothes so everything wouldn't wrinkle in mid-flight. She had been working, frantically, for the last couple of hours. She watched as the tan-colored SUV dropped over the horizon and out of sight. This was the first quiet moment she had had all morning. She turned around and all of a sudden, there were two mounds of laundry that had just magically appeared in the hallway. And she thought to herself, before I tackle that mountain, I must have coffee. She went into the kitchen. She brewed her favorite cup of coffee, stood there, looked out the kitchen window and began to reminisce. She thought to herself, you know, there was a time when the boys and I would take Dave to the airport for a four-day business trip. We would take him on Monday, we'd pick him up on Friday if he couldn't get back early on Thursday. And we would take him and anxiously await his return. And when we got to the end of the week and went to the airport as he walked through the terminal, it was like a, a victorious general returning from war to the thunderous applause of the crowd. Oh, she reflected, she remembered the long conversations, the family outings, the nights of romance. But it had been a long time since she and Dave had a long conversation. In fact, these days, if Dave ever came back early from his business trip, it was just to play golf with his friends. The boys are now older, they're freshmen freshman in high school, so family outings, well, they seem like a thing of the past. and It had been a long time since the flames of passion and romance blazed in their marriage. But even with all that, Dave was a good provider. She thought to herself, you know, Dave has a good job. He, he's attentive to the family. Uh, he cares for the boys. He, he goes to as many athletic events as he possibly can. He's active in the community. He attends church as much as any other man his age. But still, still there's something that just doesn't feel quite right. At that moment, Karen paused and reheated Her cup of coffee in the microwave and she thought to herself it was if it was only that easy to put warmth back into my marriage Dave dropped the boys off at high school and then off he went to catch his morning flight Dave was always on the phone he was on his phone all the way through the terminal until he took his seat in first class This day was no different. On this day, he's on his phone. He's talking to some of his buddies. He promises that he's going to come back on the late flight on Thursday to make the tea time of the golfing outing on Friday morning at 9 a.m. After making those arrangements for the first time in the morning, he looks to his travel companion and he gives a smile. You see, she was hired about a year ago as the marketing director for the region at first she worked from home did everything on her computer but in these recent months the company thought it would be a good idea if she'd travel with Dave Dave acknowledged that this woman was very qualified for her job she was 10 years his younger but he really enjoyed these trips I mean, the conversation they had, it was conversation about business. It was conversation about talking shop. It was conversation that consisted of much more than just lunches and laundry. There were times that he actually looked forward to the business trip. There were opportunities and moments when he would compare her qualities with the qualities of Karen, his wife. Now he had convinced himself he had done nothing wrong. They had not crossed any proverbial line. They had not done anything that was out of bounds. But I wonder if Dave realized just how close he was walking on the edge of the moral abyss. It's with that in mind that I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Today we continue our 10-part sermon series entitled First Ten: A Study of the Ten Commandments. This morning, I wanna read one verse in your hearing. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand in a reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, let me read one sacred sentence. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We ask for you to open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, Help us to unpack accurately what this commandment says. And, oh, Father, we pray that you will help us to be as passionate about our purity as you are passionate about our purity. And whatever you reveal to us that just might be out of bounds, help us to repent and help us to please you in all things. Lord, I ask for you to help me to preach. Think with my mind, speak with my lips, and overtake my body. And help me in this moment to preach the very word of God. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. You may be seated. If the sixth commandment, where the Lord says you shall not murder, was given because God values life, Then the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, was given because God values marriage. Marriage is the oldest institution known to man. It is older than the government, the military, even the church. Marriage is nearly as old as dirt. It's the very first institution that God ordained. It is the Lord who presided over the first marriage ceremony. It was located in the Garden of Eden. The angelic choir provided the prenuptial music It was really a match made in heaven. It was Adam and Eve. It was there that the Lord declared that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's here where God describes marriage by his design. This is his ideal for marriage. It's a biological man and a biological woman for life. I realize that in the Bible, there are other examples of marriage where Uh, a man may have multiple wives, but that was never God's ideal. Also, in these recent years, in our culture, we have legalized same-sex marriage. And according to Leviticus chapter 18, that is, and I quote, detestable in the sight of God. You fast forward to the days of Jesus and Jesus echoes what God the Father said. In speaking with the Pharisees, it is Jesus who says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Jesus began his public ministry with a miracle at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. By his actions, he's endorsing marriage by God's design. By his words, he's endorsing marriage by God's design. Even later in the New Testament, the apostle named Paul gives valuable instructions to married couples in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter six. When he says that when you think about this relationship between a husband and a wife, it ought to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. For a husband is to be the head of the house, he is to be the spiritual leader, he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And a wife is to be submissive to the godly guidance of her husband just as the church is submissive to the guidance of Christ. It makes a whole lot of sense for the church to be obedient to Christ, doesn't it? Because Jesus always is one who is trustworthy. Jesus is always leading us in the right way. In a similar way, Paul says, that every husband ought to be trustworthy. Every husband ought to lead his family in a way that is honoring unto the Lord. And Paul identifies that every man longs to be respected by his wife. And every wife longs to be loved by her husband. The same love that Jesus had for the church, whereby Jesus died for the church. So husbands, your wife needs to know that you would protect her at all costs. You would die for her if you needed to and if you were called upon to do it. All throughout the Bible, marriage by God's design is a biological man and a biological woman for life. One of the great gifts that God gave marriage is the gift of sexual intimacy. This is not something that we talk about frequently. In fact, for far too many of us, this subject is taboo in the church, and it ought not to be, because sexual intimacy is a precious gift that God has given to a husband and a wife. The purpose is twofold. Number one, for procreation of the human race. Without a husband and wife coming together, without a man and a woman engaging in sexual activity, then humanity would cease to exist. It's pretty much a necessity. It's a building block of, salva- of society and of civilization. But not only procreation, but also pleasure. The reason God gave sexual intimacy to a husband and a wife is for pleasure. God wants a husband and a wife to have a pleasurable sexual relationship. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is read the book of of, of Song of Solomon. It's elsewhere called Song of Songs. And that book, located between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, that book would make many present-day novels blush. Because the contents of that book, God reveals that he wants a husband and a wife to be close. Close relationally, close spiritually, close emotionally, and yes, close physically. And so God has given a precious gift to a husband and a wife. It's to be kept in the confines of that marital relationship between a man and a woman but it is the gift of sexual union, which is a good thing. It is nothing to, to be uh, dismissed or, or, or no longer talked about. It's, 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 a, it's a definite gift that God has given to marriage. But like so many things, God knows that we can take a good gift and disgrace it. And that's what humanity has done with the gift of sexual intimacy. Humanity has distorted the precious gift that God gave to a husband and a wife. In their book entitled Boundaries in Marriage, it is Henry Cloud and John Townsend who said that marriage is an exclusive club and three is always a crowd. That marriage is designed for a husband and a wife, only two, and the moment that anybody else is invited into that exclusive club, it's a crowd. Marriage is for two. It's an exclusive club. Three is always a crowd. I think God would amen that sentiment because God in the Bible has harsh things to say about those who take sexual activity outside the boundaries of a husband and a wife. In Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord says that the man who commits adultery and the woman who commits adultery should be stoned. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, Moses not only echoes what was already written previously in Leviticus chapter 19, but then Moses adds, for the nation must be purged of the evil. According to God's perspective, that whenever sexual activity is taken outside the confines of a marital relationship between a husband and a wife, whenever that is taken outside those confines, it is deemed evil in the eyes of God. It's evil. Regardless of of, uh, what type of sexual sin it is, all of it is simply evil. In our verse of Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the word that's translated adultery is the Hebrew word na'af. In other words, what God is saying is, you don't need to na'af. You need to stop na'afing in culture. Don't na'af. And what does naaf mean? It means to take sexual activity outside of the boundary of a husband and a wife. So do not commit adultery. We need to stop naafing premaritally. We need to stop naafing in between marriage. We need to stop naafing post-marriage. We just need to stop naafing. We need to stop taking sexual intimacy outside of the beautiful confines of marriage by God's design. Now, it's tempting, easy in fact, perhaps, for some to become pious when we come to this seventh commandment you may be sitting there thinking to yourself you know what pastor i've never committed adultery i have no plan to commit adultery i don't see it in my future don't see it in my spouse's future this may be one of those 10 that i just got i've really got no problem with uh because i've never committed adultery and if you're not careful you can become very pious and you can look down on a brother or sister who just might have had a moral failure And yet this morning let me just remind you that all of humanity made of the same stuff. I don't know any person who has an anti-adultery genetic makeup. There is no anti-adultery gene pulsating through your body. All of us are made of the same stuff. I think the reality that some religious folk get pious when it comes to the seventh commandment, I think that's what caused Jesus to say in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Yet I say to you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. For he who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the bar of commitment. He internalizes what was external on Mount Sinai. For there were many religious people in that day and this day who could say, you know what? I've never broken the seventh commandment according to Exodus chapter 20. And Jesus would ask us, but have you ever broken the seventh commandment according to Matthew chapter 5? i got to be honest with you. I know a lot of people who have never broken the seventh commandment according to Exodus chapter 20. But I don't know many if any who have not broken the seventh commandment according to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter five. Jesus, by implication, says that adultery begins not with an erotic act, but rather with an erroneous attitude. It was Rick Ezell who appropriately said that adultery begins in the head long before it takes place in the bed. adultery sexual sin it begins in the thoughts it begins in the feelings it begins in the head long before it ever actually physically takes place in the bed because adultery does not originate with an erotic act but rather an erroneous attitude Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 if your right eye calls you to sin gouge it out if your right hand calls you to sin cut it off Because Jesus knew that many times people get tempted into sexual sin by their sight and by their hands. So Jesus said, if your eye calls you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to be maimed and enter heaven than to have your whole body burn in hell. Now, these are extreme statements, aren't they? Listen, I've been in church all my life and I've never seen a Christian pirate, which is exactly what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter five. You know, Christians who have eye patches over their eyes and hooks for hands, because they've lopped off their right hand and they gouged out their right eye. I don't know very many Christians who look like pirates. I don't know very many Christians walking around with eye patches and with hooks over their hands. No, Jesus is telling us by inference, He is telling us as a way of extreme example that you and I need to be ruthless regarding righteousness. You and I need to go to extremes to make sure that we're not guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. You and I need to be passionate about purity. We need to go to great lengths to keep ourselves pure in the sight of God. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, we have the purity of Christ over our life. That is who we are positionally, but practically, are we that pure? Positionally, we have the purity of Christ over our lives, but practically speaking, how ruthless are we regarding righteousness? I am quite confident that there are people listening to my voice who struggle in areas of sexual purity. I'm quite confident that there are people listening to my voice in this sanctuary, on the other side of the camera, and those who will listen at a later date, I'm quite sure there are people listening to me today who struggle with sexual sin. And for some people, it is an inappropriate relationship. It's an adulterous relationship. For others, it is premarital sex. Still for others, it's a boyfriend and a girlfriend who haven't gone all the way, but they've clearly gone too far. Still for others, it just might be an addiction to pornography. I've shared with you before, and I'll share it again today, that all the studies have the same conclusion that one out of every two self-professing religious men, one out of every five self-professing religious women have viewed pornography at least once over the last 30 days. In addition to that, four out of every 10 pastors viewed pornography at least once over the last 30 days. Friends, this is an epidemic of gigantic proportion. And there are some listening to my voice and you know what it is to be caught in the trap of pornography. And still for other individuals, it may not be heterosexual sin. It just might be same sex attraction. It could be homosexual activity. For those who struggle with heterosexual sin, oftentimes you become pious against homosexual sin. And you say, how could that be? That is so disgusting and that is so gross. Can I just remind you that all sexual sin is nasty and evil and gross in the sight of God? Whether it's heterosexual, whether it's homosexual, whenever we na'af, whenever we take sexual activity outside of the confines and boundaries of a husband and a wife, God declares it evil. I think this is why Jesus internalized that which was external. I think this is why Jesus raised the bar of commitment to say even if you look upon a person lustfully, you've already committed adultery with that individual in your heart. The reality is you can go around with gouged out eyes and lopped off hands and still be guilty of lust. Because lust does not originate in the optic nerve. Lust does not originate in the hands. No, lust originates In the heart. And so some of us have really a heart issue because sin is always an inside job. It gets us from the inside out. Jesus says, Don't just be whitewashed tombs. Don't just think that because your eyes may be clean, your hands may be clean, you have not physically been guilty of adultery, according to Exodus chapter 20. I think that Jesus indicts all of us. When we come to Matthew chapter five, and you and I are called by Christ to be ruthless regarding righteousness. It was the late great Paul Harvey who told this story of how some Eskimos kill wolves. He said an Eskimo would take a razor sharp knife, He would soak that blade in blood and freeze it, repeat the process. So in essence, the Eskimo was making a blood popsicle, and the blood concealed the blade of the knife. The Eskimo would then go and plant the handle of that knife with the blade sticking straight up, with the frozen blood surrounding the blade. Eventually, that blood would give off an aroma. It would catch the attention of the wolf. The wolf would come and begin to incessantly lick the blood. Eventually, he would get down to the blade. But because of his craving for this blood, he wouldn't stop. He couldn't stop. The wolf chose not to stop. So eventually, he started licking on the blade and cutting his tongue, cutting his mouth, and the blood that he was digesting became his own blood. And eventually, the wolf would bleed out from all the blood loss that would come from his tongue and his mouth, and eventually, the wolf would die. Someone came along, heard the story, and said, such is the case with sexual sin. You just have an aroma for it. You, 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 you smell, you have an appetite for it, and you indulge in it, and you have more and more and more, and you can't get enough because what once satisfied no longer satisfies, so you will have a little bit greater appetite, a little bit more sexual sin, and eventually you die a slow death and you don't even know it. And I wonder this morning if there's anyone listening to my voice who's dying the slow death of sexual sin. You don't realize it, but like the wolf, you are incessantly just consuming that which will eventually kill you. Oh, it's at this moment that I need to take you from Mount Sinai and transport you to Mount Calvary. I mean, we've got to own our sin. And and when we come to grips with our sin and we call it what it is and we agree with Jesus that when we take sexual activity outside of the boundary of a husband and wife that activity is evil in the eyes of God. And, And when you come to grips with the evil in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your actions when you come to the evil and you come to grips with that the only thing you can do with it is just give it to Jesus. And when you confess your sin unto the Lord, as vile as it is, as nasty as it is, when you confess it unto him, I came this morning to tell you, there is no sin too gross for grace. There's no sin that's too gross for grace. Whatever you've done, whatever you've been engaged in, whatever it is, and don't try to just just dismiss it and diminish it, but whatever the sexual sin is in your life, it is not too gross for the grace of God. The hymn writer's exactly right. There is a fountain that's filled with blood and is drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. When you come to grips with your sin and when you confess it unto Christ and receive the forgiveness that only he can give for he who knew no sin became your sin for you on the cross so that now there's no condemnation for you because all condemnation was heaped upon Jesus and though Jesus was dead in your place, placed in your borrowed grave. On the third day, he was raised from the dead to give you eternal life. When you come to grips with the good news of the gospel, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, then you, like God, you've gotta become passionate about your purity. You've got to become ruthless regarding your righteousness. I'm talking to the Christian brother. I'm speaking to the Christian sister. That you, my friend, you've got to become ruthless regarding your righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that today there are some of you who need to break off the relationship. The relationship that is out of bounds. It's a relationship that you don't need in your life. Not at the level you have it. Some of you listening to my voice, you just might have an adulterous relationship, and today, friend, you need to break that relationship with your adulterer, and you need to come to grips in honest confession to the Lord and to your spouse. Say, Pastor, I can't do that. Friend, you can't afford not to do that. Now, some of you are listening to me, you think to yourself, listen, I don't have an adulterous relationship, but do you have a relationship that's out of bounds? Well, I don't know. How do you describe a relationship that's out of bounds? Listen, if you are close to someone of the opposite sex and you're closer to that person than you are your own spouse, that relationship is out of bounds. Let me say that again. If you have a friend who's of the gender of your spouse, and that quote unquote friend, you are closer to that person than you are your marital spouse. That person has a relationship with you that's out of bounds. You have a relationship with that person that's out of bounds. I confess to you that Jane Ellen is my best friend. She's my best friend bar none. Male, female, she's my best friend. I mean, I want to spend time with her. I want to grow old with her. I want to share life with her. I want to share faith with her. We don't have any secrets. It makes for some interesting conversations from time to time. But we don't have any secrets. Because I think that's how you have to be with your spouse. If you have a relationship with a person of the same gender as your spouse, and you're closer to that person than you are your own spouse, that is an out-of-bounds relationship and you need to pump the brakes. Today, you need to pump the brakes. You need to put a halt on that kind of conversation, on that type of friendship slash relationship. But pastor, I ain't done nothing wrong. Yeah, but the devil's gonna use that. So that you need to be ruthless about your righteousness. You need to be passionate about your purity. For some of you, Uh, you just need a flip phone I mean today you need to make a decision I'm gonna go get a flip phone one that has no access to internet one that cannot download any pictures or videos some of you just need a flip phone you say pastor I ain't gonna get no flip phone I'm a grown man no. You're a you're a little boy caught in a grown man's body, but you're not acting like a grown man. There's some who just need to exchange the iPhone for a flip phone. Because need I remind you, what is the purpose of a phone? To make phone calls, to get phone calls? We get very creative about what our phone can do, but fundamentally, our phone exists to make phone calls. And if your phone is leading you towards sexual sin, get ruthless regarding your righteousness. For some of you, you need to bring the computer into the living room. You need to take that device of, leading you into darkness and bring it into the marvelous light of the family. Others of you just need to smash the computer all together. You don't need the computer at the house because really all it's used for is for a porn device to pump garbage into your mind and into your heart. And still other people, listen, you just need an iron man. You need an iron woman. Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You just need an iron man. You need an iron woman, ladies. You need somebody that can hold you accountable and sharpen the iron of your spirituality, which, by the way, sometimes hurts that piece of iron, but it's beneficial. And we need more iron men with men, and we need some iron women with women. All of this is because you've got to get ruthless regarding your righteousness. Years ago, we came across Aaron Rolston. He is a rock climber in eastern Utah. In one of his experiences, his hand got caught under a thousand pound boulder. Oh, he! pulled and pushed and tried to maneuver his hand out from uh, that predicament, but, but he couldn't get loose. He stayed there for days. After a couple of days, his food ran out, his water ran out. On the fifth day that he was there in that frigid temperature, with his hand being caught under that thousand pound boulder, Aaron Rolston, put a tourniquet around his elbow. He broke his forearm, and with a dull knife, he amputated his forearm. One armed, he rappelled down the mountain. He hiked another seven miles to be rescued and to be helped. Obviously, The people there, the doctors and nurses, they cared for him. The reporters came. They interviewed him. One reporter asked this question, how did you do that? How did you have the inner strength and the fortitude to break your arm and then to amputate your arm with a dull knife? How did you do that? Here was his response. When it's a matter of life and death, you'll do just about anything to stay alive spiritually speaking when it comes to your purity when it comes to your righteousness it's a matter of life and death and you need to do just about anything to stay alive so hear the word of Christ hear the word of the Lord in Exodus chapter 20 where God declares that you and I need to be ruthless regarding righteousness. We need to be passionate regarding purity. My question to you this morning is, are you as passionate about your purity as God is passionate about your purity? because he wants you to be holy, because he is holy, positionally in Christ. You are pure, you are righteous, you are holy, but practically, do you live out that holiness? Do you live out that purity? Do you live out that righteousness? Are you as preoccupied about your purity as God is about your purity? Most of us are familiar with a story that's tucked away in John chapter eight. It's a story of a woman who got caught in the act of adultery. Truth be told, she's just a ploy in the pharisaical plot. The Pharisees bring her. She's scantily clad, if clothed at all. They bring her, for they apprehended her in the act of adultery, brought her to Jesus, and reminded Jesus that Moses says, a woman like that needs to be stoned. Now, you and I have already talked about this, that in that moment of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says not only that woman, but also the man needs to be stoned. But there is no man in this scene of John chapter 8 that leads you to believe that the Pharisees don't really care about this woman. They don't care about the holiness. They just want to trap Jesus. So they ask, what do you say? Moses says, we need to stone this woman. What do you say? When they declare that Moses said this woman needs to be stoned, I can well imagine that some of the Pharisees began to prep her for stoning. And in that day of Jesus, when a person was prepped for stoning, part of what that meant is that their hands would be buried in the dirt. And they would do that so that the person could not protect their face with their hands from the rocks being flung at them so they would bury her hands I I can well imagine that they've probably already buried her hands she's probably on her knees she's looking up she knows what should happen she's not arguing I didn't do that No, she knows that she's guilty of adultery. She knows that according to the law of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, it says a woman like that needs to be stoned. She's caught red-handed. She's apprehended. She's guilty as charged. I think she's there. Her hands are buried. She's on her knees. She's looking up. And when I see her in that condition, it moves me to a deeper level when I realize that Jesus knelt down and doodled in the dirt. And I think that when Jesus knelt down and doodled in the dirt, he looked this woman in the eye. Jesus began to write something in the sand. And as he's writing, I just think that as he's writing, he's looking at this woman. He's locking eyes with her. This God of compassion and grace and truth is looking upon this woman who's guilty of sin. And she knows it. and Everybody else knows it. And and Jesus writes something in the sand, and then he stands up. He kneels down a second time, writes some more things in the sand. There's no preacher who knows what Jesus wrote in the sand. If you ever find a preacher who tells you what Jesus wrote in the sand, run from that preacher. Because we don't know what Jesus wrote. We all speculate because that's what we do as preachers, right? We, we speculate what Jesus wrote. He may have written their names and then identified their sin and showed them how they were guilty of sexual sin, like this woman guilty of sexual sin. Maybe Jesus did that, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But eventually, after he stood the second time, he stepped back and he looked at the Pharisees and he says, Guys, have at it. He who without sin cast the first stone. Go ahead, I'll get out of the way. Throw the rocks, and one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, these men dropped their rocks, and they left. And I think it's at this moment that Jesus reached down and grabbed this woman by her hands, which meant he had to uncover them with the dirt. He grabbed her by the hands, helped her to her feet, asked the question, woman, where are your accusers? And she looked around and she said, I have none. All the while she's thinking, unless you are going to accuse me. And Jesus said, Go and sin no more. Jesus did not condone her actions. Jesus did not condemn her for her actions. He just said, Go, leave your life of sin. You know what he's saying? Be ruthless regarding your righteousness, be passionate regarding your purity. You don't don't get the forgiveness of God to go right back into the adulterous bed. You don't get the forgiveness of God to reach back and have the same sin that got you in that mess to begin with. You go and leave your life of sin. You get ruthless about righteousness. You get passionate about your purity. And this is what God is saying to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. For those of you who are wondering, what happened to Karen and Dave? My answer is, I don't know. You say, well, wait a minute. That's a cliffhanger, preacher. I mean, you started, you told us a story. I kinda got sucked in. I'm in the story. I wanna know how the story ends. You can't just leave it out there where it's a cliffhanger. You gotta resolve the story. Don't you know how to tell a story, pastor? I mean, don't you know that a story has to to have an introduction and reach a climax? There's got to be some conflict, and there's got to be some resolution. What's the resolution of the story? To which I say again, I don't know. You can ask me as often as you want to. I don't know. But this much I do know. You change a few of the names, and you change a couple of the details, And that story becomes your story. And that story becomes my story. So let me ask you, how does the story end? You change a few of those names. You change some of the details of that introductory story. That story's your story. So you tell me, how does the story end? I want you to hear the heartbeat of God. I want you to hear the echo of Jesus. You and I are to be ruthless regarding righteousness. God wants us to be passionate regarding purity. So this morning, you finish the story. This morning, it's your story. You tell me how it ends. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we thank you for your word as timely as it is. And we acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that all of us are sinners in need of your grace. And Lord, there may be people here that are thinking about some things, wrestling with some things, and Lord, today we just simply need to come and pray. We need to come to your altar, we need to pray. This altar's under construction and so are we. So Lord, today we come, and we kneel at this altar. We pray for ourselves. we pray for our spouse, we pray for our son, we pray for our daughter, we pray for our marriages, we pray for the marriages of our family, we pray for other people that we know and love that are struggling. Lord Jesus, we just want to cast all of our evil, sinful deeds at your feet. We want to receive the grace to help us in time of need. And we want to be ruthless as we walk out of here regarding our own personal righteousness. So, Father, have your way. Help us not to dismiss this moment of invitation. But, Lord, as you lead, help us to respond. May your altar be full of your people crying out to you for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.